I grew up with the Jersey Shore. They grew up with Clevedon. Same difference. <laughs> Can't quite have the same emotional moment over uh, the world's longest slice of pizza on the boardwalk as you can with uh, tea and cakes, I assume, but teach their own. <laughs> I am sure plenty have, of tears have fallen into plenty of slices <laughs> of pie. There's no oh, question yeah. about it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined today by film fanatic and author Brian Abrams. Brian, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on today. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about your new book, You Talking to Me, uh, at the end, so definitely stay tuned for that. If you're listening to this podcast, I know you're a film fan, so this is going to be right up your alley. Uh, but before we get into that, I do have to ask you the question that I ask at the top of every episode of the show. Uh, why did we watch The Remains of the Day? Okay, we watched The Remains of the Day because it is one title on my shortlist that I probably watch every six months, or I try to be in the habit of doing that. Um, so this is just an all-time fave for me. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't get to talk about it with too many friends for one reason or another. And I do have film buff friends, but they are interested in other things. So uh, I've burdened you with this, I guess. <laughs> that is the purpose of the podcast. So I'm glad yeah. we could uh, provide an outlet. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, remains of the Day, British drama. There is some really fantastic performances in this movie, notably. Uh, you've got, of course... Uh, Anthony Hopkins in the lead role, Emma Thompson uh, kind of playing alongside him, as well as a stacked cast otherwise. I think there was a couple of moments where I had a reaction of a very like Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen meme of like, ah, it's Christopher Reeves. He's <laughs> but right. uh, we'll, we'll jump into that. We open on a slow fade from a building to a country road where two cars are slowly making their way up uh, to the estate under titles. And a woman begins to narrate a letter that she's written to a Mr. Stevens. She expresses her sympathy at the death of Lord Darlington and explains that she heard the heirs of the estate had put his home, Darlington Hall, up for sale, and that without any buyers, the new Earl had decided to demolish the hall. Uh, and we go from here to an auction of various paintings and other pieces of fine art. Uh, where I, my, my biggest note here was that it was much slower than I expect like an American auction scene to be. There was mm -hmm. a very a, a smoother cadence than your uh, you know, 100, 100, 200, 300 <laughs> kind of yeah, pace yeah, yeah. that you expect. But um, 10,000 guineas and a half. 11,000 <laughs> guineas and a half. And very half. paced and very slow because it's like a very wealthy crowd that doesn't need to be rushed. And um, the narrator at the beginning is Emma Thompson. That's Miss Kenton. Yes. And, and she, I think, she, does she allude at the very beginning that uh, she was the housekeeper there and it's just her reminiscing in a letter about uh, what, yeah, all what's happening, right, to, to Darlington Hall. Yeah, they take their time getting to it. They sort of slowly feed you information. But it, it, when you're seeing so many images of this this now somewhat less fine estate than it may have been in its heyday. You kind of get the right. implication that's maybe what she's talking about uh, yeah. before she finally drops the line. Um, as the auction ends, the letter continues. Uh, an American billionaire named Lewis had saved the hall from being torn down and purchased it for himself and his family to live in. Uh, and she's like, I suppose that Mr. Stevens is not going to be turned out to the streets after all. And wondering if that 
same American was one of the congressmen who had attended a conference with the Lord of the Manor back in 1936. And she continues to reminisce happily about her time as housekeeper uh, under the butler, who we learn is the Mr. Stevens that she's writing to. Uh, and she wonders about his new staff as we see Mr. Stevens himself, uh, Anthony Hopkins, <laughs> giving an incredible performance just from the get-go, uh, walking these halls kind of mournfully as the large staff around him fades away out of the scene, leaving just the butler alone in the manor. Yeah, and there's a the, the timeline is tricky, right? Like mm-hmm. I, this is a little bit of a spoiler, and I don't mean to go out of sequence, but it, Please. it, but you're watching this opening sequence where um, it's kind of fading back and forth, really like smoothly between the present day, which is somewhere in the late '50s, to mm-hmm. back to the to Darlington Hall's heyday, which is um, 20 years or 25 years before. It's it's hard to to pinpoint the, the exact years where um, we know. Like we know certain years of certain events in the movie, but they don't really want you to track down hard dates. You know, it's not what's important. It's like, uh, which is like an affront to maybe like the logic bro to have to like know that information, <laughs> you know, to like the Nolan bro, mm-hmm. right? But it's not, it's on the insides is what counts, right? So Yeah, they do a pretty good job of stitching together because we'll be jumping around in time throughout this film. There's a nice fluidity to all of the, and now we're in the past Mm -hmm. and now we're in the present. And they set it up really well here where they're doing much quicker transitions than we'll see throughout the rest of the film. But like you're saying, it's all in service of this ambiguous time period. What kind of matters is most is past and present more so than any specific set of exact dates, which the bros will be mad about, but we're all fine with here on this show. She sort of ends her letter by saying that in the seven years since she last wrote to him, she's uh, once again left her husband and is staying with a friend in Clevedon. Uh, And we see Stephen sort of with a tray of food in his hands look down uh, this hall past the kitchen and he sees the figure of a younger uh, woman, a younger Emma Thompson, uh, walking away and she too fades out like all the other staff have around him before he continues down the hall and onto his duties. And you see uh, the art on the art on the walls like fades out too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do it's a good great. job of not only having like the actual staff members be characters, but the manor itself feels very much like a character in this movie. In sort of the same way that in Sex and the City, the city of New York is the fifth character in this movie. <laughs> Darlington Hall is itself sort of another member of the cast. I was thinking more like the Overlook Hotel or something like that. You know? That too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I recently, this is unrelated, I recently had to watch both Sex and the City movies uh, just like on a whim with some friends. It's Oh my God. I've seen nothing else. Just, but How was it? It's in there How now. Was... Uh, watching them out of order and with no other context, I think is the way to go. Do Sex and the City 2 first and then go back to Sex and the City. It's You learn so much that way. But uh... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> it makes it headier. It's like, uh, you know, yeah. you're having to figure things out. And, uh, really have to pay attention have you seen to the this, details. You've seen the series though, right? <laughs> No, not even a little bit. Oh, well, the, <laughs> the, t- the TV show is actually good. Uh, you ah. know, I can't speak for the movies. Yeah, the, the, the series is where it's at, for sure. Good to know. But we'll we'll jump back in time to uh, <laughs> the remains of the day and meet uh, Christopher Reeve's character uh, playing Lewis, the American, which was exciting. I was like, ah, great. I didn't realize he was in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, the whole cast is a very easy moment of, if you're at all familiar with any film ever made, like just pointing at the screen and being like, I know that face. I know that person. Um uh, there's no surprise that they got fantastic performances out of everyone here. Uh, Stevens pockets some toast in the study as it's once again been burnt, and Lewis reads the paper. It's a slow morning for these two uh, 
and Stevens takes this opportunity to suggest that they should revisit the staff plan for the manor uh, and sort of dancing around saying, why don't I go rehire this housekeeper I know is now available and very talented. Uh, and in this conversation, Lewis tells him that he should take that time off that he had tried to convince him to take a little earlier and go see some sights. You can even take the, the fancy, nice old car that they have at the manor, the Damer. And Stevens suggests killing two birds with one stone by traveling and seeing the lovely season, scenery conveniently near Clevedon, as mentioned in the letter, uh, and visiting the former housekeeper while he's on his little trip. Uh, Lewis has a little joke about, oh, is she your girlfriend? Uh, but Stevens just kind of brushes right past that and just talks up her housekeeping ability instead. As the scene ends, Stephen exits, taking the swanky car out of the driveway and making for Clevedon. So we're yeah. going to be watching him go on this journey through the present time portion of the but movie. We, but we know it's Miss Kenton that he's going after because she was the one mm -hmm. who wrote the letter. So, you know, him, Congressman Lewis, like giving him a little jab and like in a very American <laughs> It's a very like it's very American of him to just sort of make jokes like, oh, it's your girlfriend, huh? Like very mm -hmm. casual in the way that like, you know, Stevens is this, uh, you know, he's he's the like we all have the kind of cartoonish, you know, caricature in our head of like what an English butler is. And he like very much is that like buttoned up mm -hmm. all the way, which is like the beauty of the movie, because it does like breathe life into this uh, this archetype that we all know. And, and as we'll see. Uh, kind of breaks him down, but uh, I don't want to give anything away. I'll let, I'll let you continue. <laughs> I'll, uh, don't worry, we'll give everything away by the end of this plot uh, sure. description, so I'm sure we'll get to it. But uh, yeah, Stevens begins to narrate his own response uh, letter to now Miss Ben, formerly uh, Miss Kenton. Uh, he tells her that he will reach Clevedon on Thursday, October 3rd, about 4 p.m., and that she should leave him a letter uh, at a store along the way that he'll stop at to make sure that their plans are all confirmed. Uh, the era before cell phones, uh, the links that we had to go to in order to make sure we could meet at the same place at the same time. <laughs> right. And I should say, by the way, I mean, not to be one of those how the book is different people or whatever, but, uh, but well, the, the book uh, written by uh, Kazu Ishiguro is really wonderful. And it's, um, it's very lean and it's only told through basically the journal entries of Stevens as he's on this trip. And he does flashbacks and flash forwards and he makes kind of passing mentions of the letter he received from Miss Kenton, just one letter. There's no real correspondence back and forth like there is in the film. Well, I'll just add one more thing about the book versus movie thing, which I don't try to get too hung up on. But um, in this one instance, I can't help it because it's just like such a beautiful example of when I don't want to say the way a movie outdoes a book, but just the ways in which the two people who wrote the script just breathed life into it and were able to like emphasize certain parts that are kind of in passing in the book and then um, and just kind of move things around. It's it's a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant adaptation. It, it feels like two different stories altogether. It's it blows me away every time. So that's all. Yeah, I'm glad you've read the book because I've only seen the film. So it'll be nice to have that kind of counterpoint. If there's anything that you think, you know, the film did poorly or especially well in adaptation, please jump in. No, I mean, there, there's <laughs> nothing to criticize. They're both brilliant. It's just that, uh, but if there's something I'll try to remember that I think is kind of fun to bring up, like for instance, um, well, Senator Lewis in the, uh, in the film is kind of a composite of two characters from the book, which is one example of like where they condense things. It's really smart. Mm -hmm. um, but meanwhile, like at the very opening when you were talking about like, 
the auction and how it uh, flashback to like there's this fox hunt at the very beginning that kind of um, just shows like how grand Darlington Hall once was like that's not in the book at all and they just they took license in in really fascinating ways to pull out what was maybe half a sentence in the book to kind of like show you how how beautiful like the area was mm-hmm. um, and it's it's a uh, it's a lot of fun to see fantastic. We uh, get the rest of his letter to uh, Miss Kenton. He says that she was right about Lewis being the congressman uh, from days gone by and that he and his family are going to be living at the hall. He's the only one there right now. His wife and children are soon to follow. Stevens is like, we're a bit understaffed, but, you know, maybe you could return to your duties as housekeeper and we can kind of go back to some of how things were. And we get sort of the impetus for his trip here. It's not just to get out of the house you get the feeling you get the sense very early on that this is not a man who takes vacations uh right. <laughs> it's definitely an ulterior yeah. motive to this particular road trip uh we then go back in time to the first day that uh miss kenton arrived at the hall which is when they're doing the uh hound hunt the, the hunt with all the hounds there's so many dogs <laughs> yeah <laughs> the one shot um just to show the grandeur and uh stevens continues to narrate in his letter that uh, as he looks back on their first meeting, that it was also the last time that his lord looked especially happy to welcome neighbors into the home. Uh, we get the sense that this is now, this is something that will become unusual for Darlington Hall later on. Yeah, because this has to be, I, there's not, like, this has to be, like, 1931 or 32, something like that. So it's before, mm-hmm. uh, well, we'll get into it, but it's before sort of... Uh, world politics takes a very dramatic turn and yes. and affects Darlington Hall but yeah this is these are these are the good days for sure you know <laughs> fox hunts yay yep we got to establish our status quo before we can really get into what's going on behind the the scenes right. um Stevens expresses that he may have been a bit unwelcoming to the new housekeeper at first, but she had some of the best references he'd ever seen, and he was impressed by her nonetheless. And we see a bit of the end of their interview where uh, Stevens impresses into her the number one rule he has for staff in the house, which is no gentleman callers allowed, uh, including between other staff members. He had a particular distaste for those who go post to post looking for romance and they recently had an incident where two of the younger staff members had run off and got married and left the service as it were uh so he's like this is of utmost importance there can be no romance no romance in these halls (laughs) stevens enters the study asking his lord for a word and asks uh about the under butler and housekeeper who had run off together and explains that he's found replacements for both positions. Miss Kenton, the young woman from the letters, is going to be taking over as housekeeper, played by Emma Thompson. The second person taking over for Underbutler is going to be Mr. Stevens Sr., his father, mm-hmm. uh, who was an established butler in his own day and is now still very capable of doing the work. And I believe he's played by Peter Vaughn, which, yes. again, incredible. <laughs> he's so good. So, so... Mr. Stevens Sr. has to be, he's got to be like in his early 70s, late 60s mm-hmm. or something something like that, early 70s. And Peter Vaughn is, uh, he's an old British actor who was, I think, I guess he's in Game of Thrones. Like I've only seen the first two seasons of Game of Thrones, but there's a lot of Game of Thrones people in this movie. Um, but <laughs> I know him as uh, the grumpy old man in the bar in Straw Dogs with Dustin yes. Hoffman. So. <laughs> Excellent old man act. Some some actors, I think, are, you know, incredibly 
talented performers all through their careers and some people were just born to play like old men and old women and yes peter vaughn is so good at it <laughs> yes he no it, so if you go back and like if you google image you know peter vaughn mm-hmm. straw dogs like he looks like he might as well be 68 years old then too that movie was almost 50 years ago <laughs> yeah it's terrific the lord calls in senior steven senior greets him all the hiring is done they've got their new staff for the house all is well uh, Stevens shows his father to his quarters, and as they pass one hall, uh, the new housekeeper, Miss Stenton, Miss Kenton, asks him for uh, a quick correction to the placement of a picture, and he's very short and to the point with her about, like, oh, this picture goes in this other room, and uh, this my new show of the house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and he later watches from a window as she sets off into the garden, so he's giving a special eye of attention to their new housekeeper. In the garden, uh, Miss Kenton picks fresh flowers and greenery and later takes them to Stephen's uh, salon, he calls it. His like, office, his little his ready room, pan- if you He would. calls it his, his pantry. <laughs> that's, that's what they call it. It's his pantry. And it's like a little, yeah, he doesn't sleep there, but it's, Mm-mm. you know, it would be like giving your, yeah, he's a servant. It's like a broom closet that they, he, he does have room for like a desk and a chair with a lamp, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she puts some flowers in a vase, offers them to him, and is like, oh, we'll, we'll brighten up the space a little bit. Uh, I can bring you some more cuttings. And he tries to say, like, well, this is a room of work. You know, it's all business in here. I like I to prefer keep to keep they dist- are. Yeah, I prefer <laughs> to keep distractions to a minimum, I believe is what he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. it goes, it, it's like, so, so you're seeing a guy who's like, he, he has disdain for staffers who spend their whole week there and find romance and like he doesn't want flowers in his room he's pushing all that stuff away right Mm -hmm. he's a very singular man of very singular goals and butlering really is his whole life and his whole personality since he has her in the room though he does have a question for her and she he wants to know who she was addressing so casually by their first name as william the other day in the kitchen and she's like oh well it was your father, of course, the only William on staff. Uh, and he asks her to call him Mr. Stevens in the future, or if necessary, to differentiate them, Mr. Stevens Sr. Uh, and she seems confused and a little put off by this, as in other houses where she's worked, she addressed other servants in other houses by their first names. Um, and Stephen kind of tries to go on and say that she could learn a lot from his father, who's got that stiff upper lip, that complete and total dedication to being as polite and proper at all times as possible. Uh, and she's a little upset by the implication that, um, you know, just because she didn't know where a vase went on the first day, she isn't quite as good as her job and excuses herself in a bit of uh, a state. Um, not a not a flawless first meeting for the two of them, but I'm sure we'll see their dynamic continue to grow and change over the course of the film. At dinner, the staff are preparing for their meal. Steven's correcting the younger men on their pronunciation and grammar. He's constantly on and he's always trying to teach the other servants how to be his level of butler. Uh, He's very dedicated to his craft and you really get that through everything he does and how he interacts with all the rest of the staff as well. Um, Is this at the dinner they're having, like the the, the service people's dinner? Yes. Is that where we're at? Okay. And well, so one, so the under butler that he picks on, or excuse me, He's not an underbutler. He's a head footman. There's a uh, is Charlie uh, mm-hmm. or Mister Charlie, and it's played by Ben Chaplin, and he's kind of the uh, like he, you could tell he's sharp and he's handsome, mm-hmm. but he's like young and I mean he's still a kid. He's in his twenties, whatever. Um, uh, you know, compared to Mister Stevens, who's in his fifties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he seems to be like the 
like Mr. Stevens' target for picking on him is like how to become like a great butler. I, I guess yeah. you're getting to that. The great butler anecdote. The great is butler. Up. And with yeah. Charlie too, later on, Stevens like uh, has a line about how he thought, oh, maybe Charlie could be the next under butler. But we'll, mm-hmm. well, that's jumping ahead a little bit. So he's definitely mm-hmm. like the most important of the... There are kind of two parts of the house. There are the housekeeper and everyone below her. And then there is the butler and everyone below him. And they each have their own sort of favorite from him who will be sort of like the C-level character <laughs> that comes up in right. some of these later stories. They get onto telling a, a story that Steven Sr. has from... Uh, a butler who worked in India and uh, encountered a tiger in the dining room and very calmly and uh, serenely went in and whispered to his lord so as not to upset the ladies who were also present uh, that there was a tiger in the dining room and asked if it was good to go and basically shoot the tiger. Uh, And the lord and ladies heard just three gunshots later on before the butler returned to serve more drinks and had his usual level of decorum and coolness. Uh, saying right. to his lord that there will be no discernible traces of the recent incident left. <laughs> and right. uh, this is both entertaining and also the Stevens extolling the virtue of butlering that they hold. That is that a great butler must have dignity uh, and that sort of very must classic Must be tradition. possessed of dignity <laughs> in keeping with his position is yes. what the gentleman's gentleman quarterly tells butlers all over apparently like how to be... <laughs> Exactly. Uh, we also see that like Stevens Sr. is, despite having essentially the same attitude towards work that Stevens does, it has this sort of charm that the rest of the staff really respond to well. Everyone is having mm-hmm. a good time at this meal. Uh, so you get a little bit less of the in- inclination that maybe these two men are just alienating everyone around them to know they're part of a, a system where this behavior is both admirable and maybe to, to a modern viewer, you'd be like, oh, no, I... I don't have staff. This is a crazy way to have to behave all the time. But uh, you get to see sort of a little bit more of like a humanization of them in this moment. I think there's another element too where you see the difference in the way Stephen Sr. behaves among mm-hmm. his colleagues and the way Stevens Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins does because um, Peter Vaughn's character is a little more, uh, he's, he's a little more, uh, he's not as polished as his son. He's a, he's he's got a little more of a rougher British accent and mm-hmm. and the way he tells the story about the tiger he's just he's a, he's a little more slack about it uh, he sounds like someone who's like in a pub kind of just bullshitting a you know a story among like you know beers and shots like mm-hmm. a, and it, you can tell the difference because it's the younger Stevens is is sort of and this is by the way not dissimilar to like our workforce today like the younger Stevens has to sort of be more buttoned up and, and more pressed because that's what that's what the masters expect. Like he has to kind of be on their level of polish, mm-hmm. uh, even though that doesn't necessarily mean he can wait a table any better or worse than the, the people before him that maybe don't come across like educated. But it's it's now kind of the a new way to, how do I put it? It's like teaching a dog to sit and roll over. Like that's kind of what Stevens Jr. has been taught to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I think it's there's a certain level of polish that is expected of him as a head butler that might not have been true right. of his father when he was in the same role. And now that he's an under butler, you see a little bit of that almost more casual nature come through, yeah. especially in how he interacts with the rest of the staff. And you even kind of that connects to 
when Miss Kenton was calling him William, he it wasn't Stevens Senior who corrected her; it was Stevens. They've there's different attitudes, even slightly right. between the two men and how they approach their role in the house. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, but to interrupt their dinner is a bell, and after a moment's correction on which Stevens is supposed to go respond to it, it's the senior, not the younger, uh, Stevens Sr. heads up to do some sweeping. We see him on a staircase landing, uh, sweeping up when he kind of stops and looks a little confused to himself. He opens a very cool secret door in the wall. <laughs> There's a couple of them in this movie, and I was always extremely excited when they popped up as a big uh, oh, they're so house great. with secret doors fan. <laughs> but... Uh, unfortunately for Steven Sr., he's he's very uh, confused and kind of in the moment a little out of it. And he he walks slowly into the room with the secret door, leaving his broom and his dustpan outside. And a little while later, uh, Miss Kenton uh, comes upon this door and the abandoned broom and dustpan and picks it up, uh, closing the door and placing the broom back down. And she rushes to Stevens the Younger, uh, telling him that his dustpan was on the landing uh, and he's a little confused by this, as he was not using a dustpan, so it must have been someone else. Uh, and as soon as she leaves, he sort of lets his decorum slide a little bit and rushes quickly to pick up the pan and step into the secret door and sort of clean up the landing. Right. And so then he becomes aware of his wrongful, highly likely a wrongful allegation when he told Miss Kenton earlier that she had misplaced like certain items here and there, mm-hmm. right? Like you're starting to get the sense that she was right all along and he's just she's just kind of pointing it out to him in, in like a cheeky way. She's saying like, you know, I'm right, dude. Like, you yeah. know, I'm good. Like, don't pick on me. She's got a very like gentle approach to it at first, too. There'll mm-hmm. be a couple other incidents and she'll start to sort of ramp up the level of aggression with which she's like, this is not me. And there is an actual problem here. And at this mm-hmm. point, it's still very much like I understand that this is your father we're possibly talking to about. But, you know. Maybe you should go check on the dustpan in the landing. Like, oh, you didn't leave it there? How strange. Go deal with that incident right now. At the titled people's table later on, the Lord and his guests are discussing their upcoming conference they're planning on holding, the one Mm -hmm. referred to in the letter early on in the film. Uh, And there's a very uh, importance of discussing geopolitical issues in the friendly and relaxed atmosphere of one's home. and at the line, friendly and relaxed atmosphere, we see a, a bead of sweat fall from Stevens the senior. <laughs> is it sweat or is it, I, I mean, okay, can we get into this for a second? Yeah. I mean, is it sweat or is it mucus? Because I've always assumed that was mucus, but maybe it was sweat. Maybe you're right. But it's it like right up, it's under yeah. the tip of his nose and, and um, Lord Darlington sees it too, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone, if, if any listeners out there can write in and let us know whether it's sweater mucus yeah, or not. Yeah, doing I, a poll I, now, sweater mucus. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, younger uh, Senator Lewis is here at this event, uh, and he starts talking about, and this is the way that we'll kind of get this information, because something that comes up with Nor- Lord Darlington is that it's slowly revealed over the course of this movie that he was very much... Uh, a German sympathizer in the lead up to World yeah. War II and uh, varying degrees of agreement with Nazi party beliefs. Uh, and a lot of the people that he has over his house, particularly later on in the film and the, some of the later uh, memories that we'll see are direct uh, German officers or ger- German sympathizers. Uh, and at this point, everyone who's over his house is from a variety of backgrounds, which is why we get the Senator Lewis, as well as a lot of the British nobility or gentry. Well, we should probably jump into the politics, just lightly discuss the politics sure. at that 
uh, at that first meeting, right, where mm-hmm. he's got his his friends uh, Spencer and uh, Sir Leonard are sitting there, and they're they're like they play like the best pricks you could possibly imagine. Oh yeah, and and <laughs> Very they're just punchable guys in this movie. <laughs> totally, and so this is like around. So this has to be that conference that's coming up is like thirty five. So this mm-hmm. is like. Um, they these guys are capitalists like that's all that matters to them and as you said like lord darlington you know he was friends with other elites in germany and after world war 1 uh you know a lot of germans you know there was this the treaty of versailles basically put the boot on germany and like disarmed them and mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh economic sanctions and you know the country was going broke and like these guys want to ease that Right. They want to, like, bring Germany back into the economic fold because they know they have this. And this was the economic theory, which I'm not saying was wrong, but I mean, it obviously was wrong to empower Nazis, but they didn't want it to show up on their doorstep, any kind of like economic downturn. And that's all this was about. They just wanted Mm -hmm. to save their own wealth by saving the Germans at the time, basically. And if that meant if that meant like, okay, so concentration camps. Okay, we can live with that, right? I mean, that's essentially where we're going with this. Sorry, I'm all over the place. <laughs> no, you're completely fine. Uh, this is the point. Like, we get like, this conversation is very brief in the background. The main focus of the scene is yeah. on kept on Stevens and Stevens Senior. Uh, but you yeah. do get a bit of like the younger Lewis is the one at the table who is dissenting with the general uh, agreement that like, oh well, we could be better to Germany to make sure that the people are happier and they take pride in their country and you know, ap- you know take down some of these uh, sanctions and some of the harsher restrictions placed on them. And this is and kind of in the background of the line. Lewis is like, well, you know, the Nazis are bad. That whole thing that's starting up there, like, that's not great. Like, maybe we should look at that. And he gets shut right. down very quickly by the other men in the room uh, right. as we kind of exit the scene. And we'll get a little bit more and more of that as we get... It's never really the main focus of any one memory because we are coming at this from Steven's perspective and he's not in it to debate the other men in the room but you get like snippets of it from his experiences having served the wine and kind of been around the different players who were involved in these conversations in this house yeah you're exposed to it enough i mean even Mm -hmm. before lewis arrives and they're kind of they're talking about they're planning like the banquet to try Mm -hmm. to get these people together to try to win over uh they want to basically they want to bring like german delegates in and have them uh, at this grand, you know, banquet to meet uh, other Englishmen. But most importantly, as they discussed, is uh, Giscard Dupont de Vries, who is this like Frenchman. He's like a French mm-hmm. lawmaker, or a French dim- a diplomat of some sort. And the French were like the harshest in the Treaty of Versailles when it came to punishing Germany e- economically. So he's like a key player. If they can win over the French guy to go back and talk to his government, then like they can get their this policy changed like that's the big that's the big plan among these people <laughs> right to continue on for the servants at least because they've got a whole other inner life going on yeah. miss kenton approaches mr stevens asking if uh it was his lordship's wish the uh chinamen from the cabinet room be put outside the door they've got these statues of uh chinese men i it took me a long time to figure out if this was like british slang for something or literal it's pretty literal um yeah it's literally a man from like a buddha like a Chinese Buddha statue from, you know, mm-hmm. probably 
you know, probably was created like a hundred yes. years ago or something. One of the many antiques of the house. Right. We moved to be put right outside the door. And after sort of a tense like, well, why don't you just go look for yourself? And him being like, no, 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 you can leave. I'll look in my own time. Everything's totally fine. Uh, exchange. Mm -hmm. She goes to wait outside. And eventually he does come out and take a look at the statues, which are indeed in the wrong place. And though Stevens tries to brush off this misplacement as a small mistake, Miss Kenton says that she's concerned for how much Stevens Sr. has taken on in his old age. And we get a more explicit statement that he's the one who's making these very, very small mistakes. Uh, and she tries to push Stevens to uh, take her advice and maybe consider talking to his father or figuring out a way to reassess his duties so that he is not put in under such strain. He's a rather old man at this point. But Stevens is determined to just get back to his business and goes through another secret door. <laughs> yeah, well, the other thing that's happening is like, when you point out when Miss Kenton comes to him and he's like dusting bookshelves and, uh, you know, she's telling him to come outside and look at the Chinaman and he refuses mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and he waits and she waits out. He closes the door and he pretends to continue dusting in this room. And she, he sees her through the keyhole and he's like, you know, he's hoping she goes away. Mm -hmm. He knows that she is right, that, you know, these items are being misplaced by his father. But I think like this is when you begin to see that like she, I don't know if she scares him, but like she, he is threatened by her capability and her knowledge. And like, and it, it sort of recasts the way you think of how he was condescending to her before like like he has a mutual respect for her and he wants to and he has he's developing feelings for her and he wants to keep her at arm's length like that's how i take that moment yeah and i think it also shows shows that she sort of knows his type like she knows how to deal with him and yeah. how to yeah. kind of get what she wants or at least get him to acknowledge her more so than if she had just walked up to him and at the end of the day or like stopped by his his uh pantry like she she understands how to bring to his attention the things that need to be brought uh and i, I think the yeah. scene overall shows a great understanding on both of their parts about who the other person is yeah and if it, they're not yet sorted to how they feel about each other she admires his like stubbornness and his dedication she gets it she sees his heart like she she understands that he's into it but uh I love that she's unafraid to call him out. Like that's kind of, yeah, that's the tension you're feeling. And it is, mm -hmm. I mean, the tension becomes sexual very quickly, right? Like, <laughs> you know, not sexual in the way of like a basic instinct movie, but uh, mm -hmm. that would be a, that in, would be a very different remains of the day. Piece. Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. There's no ice pick. Yeah. No. <laughs> the uh, lords of the manor are out and about in the garden discussing the delegates arrival for their conference, including Congressman Lewis, who is from Pennsylvania, which shout out to the Pennsylvanians. It's a big, big ups for us. We get Rocky and now we get Congressman Lewis from this movie. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and as they're having their discussion about their various delegates arriving, Stephen Sr. is approaching with a tray of tea and drinks. And as he walks across the patio, he trips, uh, dropping his tray and hitting his head quite badly. The men all rush out to help him and Stevens the Younger comes out to uh, assist as well but rather than immediately uh, running off he asks his lord if he can phone a doctor keeping that right. decorum at, at all costs and even the most chaotic moments. Well it's not only chaotic but it's like like the most microscopic of requests right mm -hmm. like you're gonna ask to telephone the doctor <laughs> like like yes, yes do it but it's almost like did you ever see Cool Hand Luke with Paul yes. Newman? <laughs> It's like how in that one, like taking my shirt off here, boss, like like every small little thing. Can I put my glasses on, boss? Like every little detail. He's sort of, uh, he's happy to be kind of under the boot of his lord. 
He, that's right. where he belongs. That's that's in keeping. What is it in keeping with dignity of his position? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, later on, after this incident, the Lord calls in Stevens to the study and explains that he doesn't want any more accidents. He's like, you know, I'm I'm happy that your father's recovering, uh, but we've got such an important delegation arriving soon, and uh, you know, I feel that it's my job to uh, help out the Germans, and he tells a story about a friend of his in Germany who, after the war, couldn't find work and eventually did commit suicide, feeling that sympathy for his friend. That's why he feels so strongly about helping the Germans now. Uh, And because of this spiel, they should reconsider his father's duties before the conference so that everything goes smoothly. Not fire him, very importantly, not letting him go, but just reconsider the amount that he'll be involved in the more front-facing things and interacting and carrying trays of drinks for example so one early morning as the rooster crows the house is waking up servants are cleaning gathering firewood doing all the all the things that happen to make a house get put together uh steven senior is already dressed and ready to go when um stevens comes to visit him in his room uh he tells his father that it's been suggested that he no longer wait at the table on account of his accident nor carry heavy trays, and gives him a revised list of his duties. It's a great line, though. When he says, (laughs) when he tells father that he's no longer to wait a table, he turns his head and he gives this, like, like he lets out this, like, this breath of air, and he goes, I've waited at table every day for the last 54 years. Like, he is (laughs) outraged. He's as outraged as a butler can possibly be at that moment. You're like, it's pure castration at that point. Yeah, you you know, like the whole, I mean, incredible job from Peter Vaughn in this scene of just like, you can just see how devastating this is. You know, it, it's almost worse than being fired to be yeah. demoted in well, such he, a way. And he knows what's happening. He tripped and fell on these paved stones outside the summer house, which is, you know, obviously a completely degrading experience that everyone sees. And now this, he's, he it's death. He's he knows where this is all going. I'm spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Like things are <laughs> things are falling apart for this man. And you know his son gave him this pity job of an under butler, right? Which is kind of poor judgment on on Stevens Junior's part. Yeah, it keeps him close. I guess is good. Yeah. But... Well, he, right. He's got a heart. He let his dad have the job. He's he's got a mm-hmm. heart. And 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 the father knows how to do it. But he's like seventy two years old, and it's a very physical gig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Stephen Senior will also continue to blame the crooked stones on the patio for his fall, kind of re- resisting the admitting even to himself that it's his old age and it's coming for him with this very physical job. Uh, but he does take the revision of duties. He, you know, he's going to do his job. He's going to do his duty with dignity, no matter what the role is itself. Um, Miss Kenton spots Stephen Sr. tapping at patio stones when she's watching through a window and eventually uh, calls Stevens over to watch as his father kind of practices miming carrying trays on those same stones, clearly trying to both replay the incident in his mind to see how it could have happened and also make sure it won't happen again. Stevens is later explaining to his father the uh, new jobs he has. He's got a roving commission, so he's sort of got full run of the place to sort of be cleaning and helping where he can and he gives him a cleaning cart of mops and brushes for dusts mm. and dirts and what have you uh, and it, there's a little bit of like a funny moment at the end where steven senior immediately rushes off to start polishing something and before stevens is finished explaining yeah, the angry. finer points of brass polishing yeah he's he's upset and he's angry uh but there's it, a little bit of like a 
just a, just a small moment between father and son of like, oh, no, he's he's kind of got to be left to his own. Mm-hmm. Stevens is later addressing the entire staff, uh, kind of gassing them up for the uh, big momentous conference to come and how they've all got to be at the top of their game. And we see a little montage of all of the preparations for uh, getting the estate in ship shape for their big uh, mm-hmm. arrival of their guests and all of all of their their talks to come guests begin to arrive we see that swanky blue car again and mm-hmm. uh this time the younger lewis <laughs> is here to visit oh i didn't catch that so the daimler was congressman lewis's car the whole time uh I and think he it's either did congressman lewis's or they like had sent it from the estate to pick him up but it's definitely ah. like closely tied to this period of time yeah, it's an older car. It's definitely so in the fifties when Congressman, oh, is that right? Do we get there? Yeah, when Lewis takes over, yes. and he, and he, I'm sorry, sorry, gang, we're going back. <laughs> so, so Lewis take he takes over uh, Darlington Hall at the beginning, uh-huh. and he and he keeps Stevens on as the butler, and Stevens is now old, and uh, like really old, and then he gives him like the blue Daimler to drive off on that co- cross country tour. Is it? So this night, you're saying that same Daimler pulls up. I have to rewatch the movie now to see if that was <laughs> Lewis's car. They wouldn't have sent for him. He would have come. He he would have like gotten his own service to get to uh, Darlington Hall on his own. So now I get to watch it again. This is terrific. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy for that. Granted, I'm pretty bad with like the species of cars, but I, I've, I, it looked the same to me. So. Well, yeah, if you call them, I mean, by calling them species, I would say that, yeah, you're pretty bad with yeah, yeah. knowing whether it's a make and model or, or what. It's mm-hmm. pretty funny. The species, uh, okay, continue, I apologize. The species <laughs> of car. Species of car. Regardless of what he's driving, uh, Stevens announces the arrival of the American to his lord. Uh, he's a day early. He wasn't expected until tomorrow. And uh, Lord Darlington takes the opportunity to tell Stevens that his godson, Cardinal, is soon to be engaged and that he's uh, very excited for the boy. He feels a great deal of responsibility for him. Uh, he's almost like a father figure to this boy. And uh, as a result, Cardinal will be the secretary at the conference for him. Uh, and he asks a rather irregular figure of his butler uh, because the Lord is just too busy with the conference. Uh, and if if Stevens would be oh so good as to explain the birds and the bees to the fully grown adult cardinal, uh, that would be just just so helpful. Uh, and of course, Stevens agrees. It's his duty to do as his Lord asks. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, it's it's it ends up being a thing that brings these two characters in particular like closer together in a way that they might not have ever been otherwise. But it is an incredibly funny exchange. Uh, Stevens finds Cardinal in the garden, uh, kind of startling him. It's Hugh Grant. Another moment of pointing at the it's screen great. and saying like, "Whoa!" <laughs> um, but Stevens kind of stumbles his way through talking about how you know have you did you notice the ducks and the geese today uh what about the birds and the flowers or shrubs and bees maybe this whole conversation will be better in springtime and just sort of stumbles his way through talking about uh the arrival of spring and and not quite getting to the point of the birds and the bees so much um the ducks and the geese and the flowers and the bees (laughs) and so so hugh grant is like 32 or 33 years old like as an as an actor he's like he and Emma Thompson were both like 32 or 33, somewhere around there. But he's clearly like supposed to be a little younger, the way his yeah. hair is slicked back. I mean, this man has to be 23, 22. Something around there. Maybe, yeah. maybe 20, possibly 20. But, but he knows the birds and the 
speaks. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he. I'm pretty sure he has the basics down. It, there were some points in this conversation where it felt. Uh, sometimes it feels like he doesn't know what's going on, and he thinks he's just a butler being friendly and talking to him about the nature on the estate. And at some points, I'm like, no, you. Th- it feels like you know what he's sort of dancing around a little bit. Totally. <laughs> I. I know. I can't tell. I feel like because because as yeah, he's like kind of giving Stevens a hard time. He's like, I'm more of a fishman myself, freshwater yeah. and salt. And like you're like, does he? know that the butler is trying to give him sex talk right now and like give him <laughs> or is he just like completely obli- I I do not know I cannot yeah. tell either way it's in one of the funniest conversations in the entire film it is great um and only the arrival of like the French ambassador will allow Stevens to make an exit from this conversation and go to do more of his butler duties um this, this Frenchman uh, has terribly sore feet and he will have them for the entire time he is on screen. Uh, he is requesting a, a basin full of warm water and salt. Uh, and as he's relaxing in his room, trying to soothe his aching toes, uh, Lewis comes in to greet him and ask if they could speak privately. As we mentioned, he's sort of the one that everyone is trying to woo to decide whether or not France will be swayed to the side of the Germans or not. So Lewis Giscard very early Dupont on is... Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. I will not uh, inflict my French accent on listeners of this podcast. Well, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> okay. So so Dupont de Vries arrives from London mm-hmm. and his feet are absolutely destroying. He, he is like a rotund man and uh, he has two tight shoes. I, that's like that sounds like <laughs> I'm doing Borat, but he has like a really wound up French accent. Yeah. And so his shoes are too tight. He had to do sightseeing in London. And I think, as you'll see, like, because of the tight shoes, uh, you could one could write a hot take on how that is what caused World War II is because he had the wrong pair of shoes, Absolutely, and that left cause... him that left him vulnerable to these discussions. Yeah, every time Lewis comes in to talk to him, he's so upset because he's just trying to ache his feet, and he doesn't ever really right. listen to what the man has to say. Um, right, and Lewis knows that what the Germans are up to, uh, you know, this this sort of uh, this you know, cri- the English try these English elites trying to create a detente for the Germans and trying mm-hmm. to win over the French. Lewis knows this is wrong. He knows yes. it's the bad move. And he's trying to shore up the Frenchmen and say, hey, no, 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 stay stay hard. Stay with your French people. Don't do this. We don't need to let the Germans off the mat. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and as they sort of begin that conversation, we get more arrivals, this time German. Uh, luggage is brought in, bells are rung, tables are set, and the conference is in full swing. Lord Darlington continues to talk about how they need to make peace and rebuild Germany, uh, especially, you know, going for equal armaments and all these things that will be factors mm-hmm. that eventually lead to uh, World War II. <laughs> right. Stevens kind of leads the Frenchman into a side room at one point to rest his feet. And again, he's followed by Lewis. And there's a little bit of like almost a comedy of they keep Stevens keeps shuffling them from room to room down the hall. And the Frenchman keeps like being like, oh, my feet and shuffling off. And then Lewis always runs right after them. And it's almost a comedy mm-hmm. of errors for just a brief moment. Um, as the two men continue to discuss uh, their plans and Lewis continues to try to convince him to continue to restrain the Germans. Uh, and Stevens hears just snippets of this until he is called away by, uh, I think it's Charlie or one of the other underbutler younger men working here, um, mm-hmm. told that his father has been taken ill. Stevens excuses himself and rushes off to find his father doubled over his cleaning cart. Uh, and before he goes to attend to his father, he tells the younger servant to go take care of the Frenchman with the basin of warm water and the salt. So he never even forgets for a moment his duties as he goes to check on his, his father. Um, Stephen Sr. is unresponsive and clutching his cart so tightly as to be unable to be torn away. Uh, it's, it's a very like solemn 
unpeeling of the fingers from around the cart. This man who's yeah. sick and fallen down at his post, essentially. He's unconscious, and he's, I mean, he's pretty much unconscious, and he's, like, on his knees, leaning against the cart, and, yeah, mm-hmm. his, his hand gripped the, uh, I mean, he had a stroke, basically. Yeah. You know, he's just stuck on the cart, and, yeah, it's not great. Not great. Oh. Um, Miss Kenton takes over monitoring his father so that uh, Stevens can go call the doctor, and the doctor pretty much confirms that his condition is not good, and uh, tells him to call if he deteriorates more. There's not really anything they can do. So time marches on, more bells ring, staff rushing to their various duties. There's a, the music in this is pretty subdued overall. There was a very goofy tune playing under a lot of the bell ring. <laughs> Get very like jaunty for a minute there. <laughs> Stevens, as he's setting up tables and going through his duties, is also teaching some of the younger servants, particularly Charlie, but many of the others as well, the finer points of butlering and serving ware placement, kind of quizzing them as they go through the table set off, like what's missing? What do you see here? Um, showing that he he's very involved with his staff, even if he isn't as personable as his father was. There, there's a level of decorum there, but there is still care and attention to those who are working under him. Would you say that they're buttling? <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. say that's an apt description. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stephen Sr. is awake on bed rest, still worrying about everything, uh, being in hand downstairs. Even when he's sick on his deathbed, he, he can't tear his mind away from work. Stephen Sr. Uh, is talking to his son in his room, and he, he's sort of trying to whisper that he has something he must tell him. And Stephen's mm-hmm. trying to say that they could talk in the morning. But before he can leave, uh, his father kind of blurts out that he fell out of love with his mother and found out that she had been carrying on at one point. And he sort of mutters to himself that Stevens is a good son, and he hopes that he's been a good father. And, and Stevens, more than rushing out of the room, he actually holds for a moment and like sits with his dad before... Uh, eventually leaving to return to his duties, saying that they'll talk in the morning. But this is a very, it's a more explicit declaration of care than either of these men have really said to each other at any point in the film. Um, Steven Sr. for sure, yeah. because he knows he knows he's on his way out. Stevens Jr. holds back. He's terrified of, well, I think he's terrified of realizing his father's passing. and he, mm-hmm. and but But he's also pushing in the back of his mind a lot, which... By now, you're getting the feeling that the way the defense mechanism that Stevens used, Stevens Jr., Anthony Hopkins uses, whether it's with Miss Kenton or the way that he just kind of tries to maintain an an employer-employee relationship with his father and tries to constantly keep this distance. It's his mm-hmm. it's his struggles with intimacy. It's it's like the you know to hide hide in his job and that's his identity and. Um, he knows you can kind of tell he knows it's tragic to be this way, but he has no mm-hmm. other he has he's too scared to try anything else. I, yeah. You can feel all that at this point. It's the only way he really knows how to be. His father actually is the one who tells Stevens to go down to the final dinner of the conference, sort of dismissing him from the room and almost more for his son's sake than his reinstating that employee employer relationship even briefly. Uh, and Stevens leaves, saying that they'll talk in the morning. Spoiler alert, audience, they will not talk in the morning. <laughs> right. At dinner, a German woman, I think she's an opera singer or performer of she's some kind. The, she's a baroness. Baroness. She's, so she's, she's, she is like, I don't think she's military or anything, but mm-hmm. she's definitely like elite, part, of the, part of the German elite, part of the war machine. She's connected in all that way. Mm-hmm. She's, she's dispatched by the Fuhrer to, to be part of this thing, for sure. 
Yeah, and she gives a speech about how she's impressed with the spirit of goodwill for Germany and how Germany only desires peace. Uh, And after this, the Frenchman gives a speech saying that he is impressed by the desire for peace from everyone present and uh, saying that, you know, Europe knows war and they don't want it again. Uh, And we will, you know, I'll try and change the policy of France towards friendship with Germany. The thing that everyone else at the conference, save Lewis, seemed to be gunning for accomplished. Um, Mm -hmm. Lewis then takes his turn to stand and give a speech uh, saying that the U.S. doesn't want war, but they don't care for peace at any price. And uh, it seems like he's going to kind of like rest on that note and turn to instead like cheers the host, Lord Darlington. But as everyone else sits down from the toast, Lewis continues speaking about how uh, the Lord and everyone here are decent, honorable, well-meaning gentlemen, but they're all uh, amateurs to international politics. They should not be running these international affairs and real politics are taking over and you need professional real politicians to run international affairs and this toast does not go over quite so well as the last one's awkward acknowledgement this is dead silence um until the lord picks up the conversation the lord kind of counterpoints uh lewis's speech by saying that the amateurism that he describes is the gentleman's honor uh and as he starts to speak in favor of the way that this conference has gone Stevens receives a message from one of the younger staff uh, saying that Kenton wants to see him at once about his father. And so yeah. we get this frequently the, the what will be happening is there'll be this clashing of the kind of international affairs politics going on amongst the lords of the house and Stevens own like personal life and personal dramas. Uh, and Stevens is constantly being faced with these complex uh, moments in the, this political landscape and also this, these complex moments in his own life and his own mind and how does he deal with that uh, and, and I can imagine that it's part of why at certain points in the film he'll say like oh I was there but I don't remember this happening or I was there but I don't remember what you said because every time that someone was doing a big speech for example his father was dying and he was getting news about it simultaneously and it creates this interesting dynamic to set up some of the later things that he'll say in the future present uh, timeline t- sense. it's a- <laughs> It's ambiguous when when yeah. Stevens like refers to whether or not he actually knew what was happening. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. you know, he he's not an expert on like, you know, global on geopolitics or anything. But you know, he he he's in self denial about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what he needs to pay attention to or should pay attention to where the life of a butler ends and where the life of Stevens actually should begin. He he. Um, you can't exactly tell like where where he sits on that when he tells people things like that like oh i was there but i was you know i was working you it's not clear yeah um as the lord's speech comes to an end stevens rushes out and sees miss kenton who informs him that his father had passed away minutes ago she expresses her apologies and sympathies and asks if she'd like to see him and uh he refuses as he's busy and she just asks for his permission to close his father's eyes, which, of course, he grants. And he expresses to her before he walks away to continue his duties that this is what his father would want him to do is to carry on his work. It's not just his own choice. Stevens returns to the conference where they've moved on to a performance of a German opera in the parlor. There, Stevens is talked to by a cardinal who remembers him and uh, his fondness for nature, expressing once more how much he likes fish. Uh, and the as the song wraps up, uh, Lewis and Lord Darlington briefly talk and shake hands to be just friendly for a moment and make good before Stevens finishes his duties and uh, walks past all of the waiting staff to his father's deathbed. 
The doctor tells him that his father had a massive stroke and would not have suffered much pain. And while he's there, Stevens asks the doctor to take a look at the feet of the Frenchman, never entirely off duty. And they leave to attend to the guest after he takes a brief, brief moment with his father. Way later to present time, the 50s or so, where older Stevens arrives at the market he had told Miss Kenton to write a letter to, and he stops to pick up his mail and a couple apples. Uh, as he gets the letter from the shopkeep, he asks where uh, Stevens is from, and hearing the name Darlington recalls that wasn't it Lord Darlington who was a Nazi and got them into the war? And so we sort of start to get the more explicit text of what we've been hearing snippets of from the past and from Stevens' memory. Uh, but Stevens denies any acquaintance of the former owner at this point. Getting back in his car, Stevens reads a letter where uh, Miss Kenton says that she'd be glad to meet him at the Seaview Hotel. They'll have much to discuss, musing that she's lost track of all the other former uh, workers from the hall and wondering, you know, who could ever keep track of all the people who were employed there. Uh, and back in time we go. <laughs> Lord Darlington tells uh, Miss Kenton to send in two young ladies who have just arrived from Germany, and she shows in two young girls who are going to be joining the housekeeping staff. Uh, he tries talking to them in German, and they always respond in English, and they express their gratitude on being allowed to come to the hall uh, before being shown out by Miss Kenton. And they seem a little frightened, and they definitely have these like thick Eastern European accents. Yes. Yeah. They're definitely, you know... They're there to work on staff. They're not there as guests like a lot of the nobility was previously. It, there's a different and, situation and here. And they're ethnic. Like, they, yes. you know, they're not, they're not these waspy British uh, <laughs> types. Yeah. Exactly. Lord Darlington then walks to greet even more visitors, this time men in spooky, ominous dark suits. Uh, one of them is buttled by a Mr. Ben, who mm -hmm. uh, recognizes... Sir Jeffrey is the yes. one you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> Real son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. His butler, Mr. Ben, uh, recognizes and seems friendly with Miss Kenton as they've formerly been on staff together in a different house. By the way, how do you think Wadsworth's butlering or buttling would compare <laughs> to Stevens? Mm. If they were in like a butler off. Yeah. I mean, I'm going with Stevens, I feel like. I feel like, I feel like if it's, is... it's like butler skills, it's Stevens all the way. Right. If, if Hosting point, skills. Hosting skills... Wadsworth might have the edge there. <laughs> if that was actually Wadsworth, not to digress. that Because we don't of know course. if that was Mr. Body or not, if I remember right. Is that a little right? ambiguous. They, yeah. It depends on the ending you get when you play the uh, right. DVD. <laughs> yeah. Butler's ranked. I'll, do, I'll mm -hmm. get back to you on that. Yeah. yeah. If any listeners want to write in a favorite butler, we'll include them in the ranking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at dinner that night, the men discuss the uh, fascist ideologies with a blasé that was truly sickening looking back on it from this time. Oof. But, oh, God. Um, I mean, it was bad then. It was, it was <laughs> Yeah. What do you mean? Oh, it was fine. You know, hey, you had to be there. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. It was. Sir it Jeffrey's was so like, Sir Jeffrey's like, you know, so uh, what well, he's just like, look, over there, they call them concentration camps. Over here, we call them prisons. What's the difference? Mm hmm. It's, I mean, they're both was, bad, actually. But Yeah, it was always abhorrent, but uh, it's like getting smacked in the face after the more kind of like vague talking around they did in a lot of the previous conversations. This is the beginning mm -hmm. of, well, now we've had someone in the future call Lord Darlington a Nazi, so we can just fully jump into all the subtext yeah. is uh, yeah. fully textual now. 
Ben says that uh, down in the, the gossiping butler's quarters, Ben has heard some fishy things about the lord of this house, but Stevens is like, I don't hear anything. I just do my job. Uh, I, I don't give in to idle gossip. And he explains that uh, he doesn't listen to the gentleman's conversations as it would distract him from his work. Just then, Miss Kenton arrives with some fresh soda for the men, and though Ben invites her to join them for a drink, she excuses herself to retire for the night. And after she leaves, Ben remarks that she is a very good-looking woman, and how after she had left the house where they were both previously employed, he quit shortly after as well. So they clearly have a familiarity at this point. Mm-hmm. They worked um, together previously, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Ben and Miss Kenton, at some other house. Yes. Like that, uh, that, like that information happens like very quickly at, like at the beginning of that sequence. Yeah, they really slip through it. Um, Stevens muses that he would sort of kind of kind of almost himself like that he would be lost without her as and then he sort of recovers from that but like oh but you know a first street housekeeper is essential to the management yeah. of the house like she's just such a good housekeeper it's all about the housekeeping the lord sits in his study and uh, reads Nazi propaganda uh, about the Jewish people and mm-hmm. uh, as he does the two uh, German refugee girls are cleaning his fireplace and as he reads this like blatant propaganda and hate speech, uh, the way that he looks at the girls changes and they finish up and leave. And the next scene is him asking Stevens uh, about the two refugee German girls and saying that he has to let them go. He tries to sort of talk around it at first, saying his reasoning is that, well, you know, he has to think of the well-being of his guests. And though Stevens tries to stick up for the girls at some point, not the hardest he could, not as hard as Miss Kenton will later, but still a little bit of like, oh, are you sure? They're very good workers. The Lord eventually lets slip that like, well, they're Jewish, so we got to let them go. They, they got to they go, uh, having given into and been influenced by this propaganda. I should probably jump in with like a book versus movie thing about mm-hmm. Lord Darlington at this point. The book definitely depicts Lord Darlington as a little more uh, self-assured about his fascism or or leaning leaning into like mm-hmm. the fascism and being a German sympathizer. Whereas in the movie, uh, James Fox, who plays Lord Darlington, does a terrific job. He yes. was also like one of these British actors who like did a lot of like hip stuff in like the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> uh, there's this movie called Performance he's in with Mick Jagger. Ooh. It's very cool. Um, where they're like gangsters. Uh, but he, like Lord Darlington in this movie is kind of naive. Like he's, he is like an honorable gentleman, uh, you know, who, who wants to like, you know, do right by society. Of course, you know, as a wealthy man. And um, so when he's having like this giant banquet with the Germans or when he's having Sir Geoffrey the fascist over for dinner and they're giving him these books and he's like taking in this information, he's just getting suckered into mm-hmm. the idea of fascism uh, and his two capitalist friends, by the way, that are always over there and like filling his brain with stupid stuff. Um, so he's, it, there's a different, there's a different Lord Darlington in the movie than in the book. It's, um, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's an improvement or not. It's apples and oranges, but. It changes the way out. that I feel like, cause I think the more, for at least like a reader or viewer, a more explicitly fascist Lord Darlington kind of changes how we approach Stevens' opinions of him later on. This version, yeah. you can kind of understand Stevens the yeah. butler, who is so dedicated to his lord, whose whole life revolves around, like, my dedication as a butler, my dignity as a butler is tied to this lord. Yeah, I want him you're to sold on it. Yeah. Yeah, it, you're sold on it with Stevens. You're like, oh, well, he does seem like a decent guy as far as mm-hmm. it goes, as far as rich people go. Seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the constant, unending... Uh, <laughs> 
underlying fascism that builds in him over the course of the memories that we see that you can understand why this is a point of conflict for Stevens rather than it being something that he may have already been much more aware of. Uh, Kenton, as I mentioned, is very shocked to hear the decision about the two girls, and she tries to get Stevens to let the girls stay, because if they if they lose this job, they could be sent back to Germany. Stevens just sort of tries to, to brush it off, and so Miss Kenton threatens to leave if the girls leave uh, the house. Some days later, uh, some rainy afternoon, we see Kenton and Stevens interviewing a new girl to join the housekeeping staff. Stevens tries to declare her unsuitable, but Miss Kenton goes to bat for her, saying that she had good references and she seemed capable. They kind of turn the conversation in this interview away from the the new possible girl to the dismissal of the two German girls. Uh, That's and Miss- Lizzie, her, by, played by Lena Headey, by the way, who is uh, another one of the Game of Thrones people. Yeah, and she'll be kind of the the Charlie of the women's housekeeping side of things for a bit yeah. in this film. But they're talking about the dismissal of the German girls, and Miss Kenton expresses that she didn't leave, uh, and by her own admission that she has got nowhere to go, and she is afraid of this, and she she's very cowardly for having not stood by this threat that she made to, to, to stand by these girls. I'm frightened of leaving, she says. She mm-hmm. says, I'm frightened of leaving. All I see out in the world is loneliness, and it frightens me. And um, it's just all too relatable for, like, <laughs> anyone who holds a job. Yeah. That's all. It's, it's a big jump to make. Because obviously at some point she does leave the house. We know this from the fact that she's writing from a different location later on in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we can guess that it's probably because of marriage. But there was no, like, real fast and hard rule of when she would leave so kind of during all these memories there is a moment of oh is this going to be the point where miss kenton leaves like is this mm-hmm. going to be the point where she exits the picture but of course it's not stevens expresses in this moment that she means a great deal to the house uh she does a lot of great things for the house and we all understand that the house means stevens <laughs> right um right but yeah she's yeah yes <laughs> yes you mean so much to this house right and he's she's mm-hmm. like oh don't i I mean, she's she's like you're talking about me, right? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about yeah, us. She she sort of gets what he's what he's saying as well. Yeah, uh, she definitely gets it. Yeah, and after the, this moment, they they return to work and they they hire uh, Miss Lizzie Hull, a car driving through the countryside. We are jumping back into the to the present day. Uh, the engine of the car gives out, and Old Stevens uh, hails a nearby driver and finds his way to a a pub to crash at for the night, as his car has had some engine troubles. I know you're like a giant gearhead and all, but uh, <laughs> just for clarification, he runs out of petrol. That's yes. all. He just runs out of gas. <laughs> the engine is fine. He just didn't know to fill up the tank because he hasn't driven a car in, you know, Sometimes. ages. Yeah. yeah. He'll, you know, get some gas from uh, this pub that he gets pulled over to. He's talking with a lot of the locals who have mistaken him for a member of the gentry, uh, asking like about all these famous people that he's met, uh, politicians, mm-hmm. and, oh, have you ever met Churchill? And uh, many of these he says, yes, because they're not necessarily inherently lies. He just wasn't the man of the house when these people were over. Uh, and Stephen seems a little bit uncomfortable with all of this. He's he's prefers to keep to himself in general. Uh, and well, the- he, he doesn't want to say that he's from Darlington Hall because yes. he, Darlington Hall has like a bad rep. So he has mm-hmm. to like... He, he's just trying to be as polite as possible and and say that, yeah, he has interacted with all these people, but he couldn't, like, come out and say it as, like, one way or the other that he was, you know, a, he's not a politician. And he just didn't want to say that he was a butler there. That's all. Yeah. So it's it's awkward. It's awkward. Mm-hmm. 
And it only stops when uh, another, the, I believe he's like a doctor or something, yeah. but he's a higher ranking member of the town uh, comes yeah. up and he offers to give Stevens a ride the next day to his car uh, along with a, you know, a uh, can full of petrol and um, mixing up the British and American slang for different items when taking notes on this movie was very tough for me. <laughs> like what? Wait, like what? Well, just like petrol versus gas. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah he ran out of gas. He ran out of petrol, petrol. <laughs> Instead, Steven sort of retires for the night. He's shown to his room above the pub. And as he is, uh, the Lord, uh, not the Lord, the landlord is uh, talking about how met a lot of people from around here who lost a lot in the war, including him mm-hmm. and his wife, whose son passed away at Dunkirk, uh, which is very famous. There's you what we've all seen the movie. There's a very famous battle in World War Two. A lot of British yeah, you uh, know, civilians went out on the boats to get people back. Very tragic. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I I wish I had seen it on the big screen to care more about it, but I'm just not a Nolan guy yeah. that much. But um, but yeah, when the innkeeper points to like the framed picture of his dead son mm-hmm. in the rented room for Stevens, it's just sort of like. Stevens can't go anywhere without the reminders of of his lord's wrongheadedness and where this all led to. Exactly, he, it's, he, he's surrounded by it. I mean, we're, they were all surrounded by it, but he especially mm-hmm. was haunted by the decisions that uh, his lord made. Yeah, especially on the rare occasion that he does leave uh, the manor. Yeah. You know, he leaves the hall. He's forced to confront the world that was affected by the decisions that were made there. Yeah. Uh, we go back into the past. Stevens is serving uh, as men debate the importance of political options uh, and the political opinions of the common man. And as he's kind of going around serving, one of these men is like, here, I can I can prove my point that we, we shouldn't be considering every every commoner's uh, opinion. And he quizzes Stevens on high level political questions, to which, of course, Stevens says that he he can't answer or he doesn't have uh, any way to assist here. And this is taken as evidence against democracy and listening to uh, the average Joe, as it were. Yeah, it's such an asshole move by Spencer because he's like, yeah, he's condescending to Stevens, like asking him questions on trade and on the mm-hmm. gold standard and foreign policy and currency and uh, whether or not the French and the Bolsheviks should come to an arms agreement. Uh, it's, it's as if this guy is like pretending that representative democracy doesn't exist like stevens doesn't have to know the ins and outs of all of these issues but he is allowed to vote for someone to go off and represent him like that's the whole point but the elite are just like pompous asses and they've been in when you're wrapped in wealth for so long or for your whole life that it's easy for you to look out and be like oh yes no i i will handle it right leave it to me to make the decisions yeah and it comes off as a very asshole move, too. So the film is not taking an unequivocal stance on that. <laughs> no, not at all. Not um, at all. In the present, we jump back forward. We jump back forward. Oh, boy. We're getting real back to the future with these descriptions. I know. Uh, <laughs> old Stevens is driving with the uh, doctor who asks if that if Stevens is a manservant of some kind, kind of clocking that maybe he wasn't the uh, gentry that he claimed to be. And Stevens admits that he's the butler uh, of Darlington Hall. Uh, and once more, the name Darlington rings a bell as the man remembers him as the lord who was involved with uh, appeasement, got them into World War II, and tr- kind of was trying to get the British to make a deal with Hitler. And after the war, the lord had sued a paper for libel writing against him. Uh, and Stevens, at first, once more feigns not knowing that 
that particular Lord Darlington, instead saying, oh, I've started working there recently with the new Lord, um, when they uh, reach his car. And as they're refilling the petrol, uh, Stephen sort of softly admits that he did, in fact, know that Lord Darlington. Uh, he had served him for many years and that that Lord Darlington at the end of his life had said that he regretted uh, many of his decisions and that, you know, he was a true gentleman after all. And Stevens was proud to have served, even if he didn't necessarily say he was proud of the beliefs. And before they part ways, the man once more asks if he agreed with his master's beliefs. But Stevens says that it just wasn't his place. He was just there to serve. And mm -hmm. uh, though his master made mistakes, he, Stevens, is on his way to correct the one big mistake that he made now. Uh, kind of acknowledging the little the journey that he's on on this road trip it's nice to hear him say that too yeah i mean i think that's really the only time you hear stevens that might be the most vocal you get out of him for for as far as his affection toward miss kenton goes exactly that might be it yeah it's like the most explicit of his uh, affection for miss kenton and then also one of the most explicit times that he either agrees or disagrees or at least has some sort of clear feelings about how his lord's uh various effects on the world and political beliefs mm -hmm. have affected him as a person or have affected like his own uh beliefs yeah. there's definitely a moment of it's all hitting him yeah yeah he thinks about it at least even if he doesn't have mm -hmm. a clear stance it's something that does affect him mm -hmm. uh we're going back to the past where stevens is ironing the newspapers which is insane to me i thought that was the best little oh, like so cool. piece of the just... iron is plugged into the ceiling somehow. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he, I, oh, it's so cool. Ironing the newspapers. I can't even imagine a world where that's a thing I think about. But yeah, I guess if you've got the staff of this size in an old British manner, want to really put on a presentation for your guests. Um, Do you think also like if, if there was a back to the future, like if Marty McFly DeLorean <laughs> back to the 30s and he ended up at, at Darlington Hall, would there be like, do you remember how there was a biff in the future and in the West, oh, like yeah. would there be a Biff like walking around oh, Darlington Hall? Oh, there gotta Hall? be, right? He'd be one of the Nazis, right? <laughs> or one of the guys from the Fox Hunt at the beginning, which could be the same, but still. <laughs> yeah. I could just see him in like the riding boots and then just <laughs> a bunch of Oh, dogs. and so then that means, so George McFly is like one of the under butlers who's like tripping over things and he's having <laughs> to pour wine for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lord Under, uh, Lord Darling, tells Stevens one of their guests was impressed with the silver polishing and after delivering the compliment uh, kind of asked him to try and track down the two Jewish girls who he'd fired a year earlier. Ugh. The Lord expresses that it was wrong what occurred and Stevens kind of tries to impress him like, oh, you know, it's very difficult. We tried to get one a job somewhere, but they wanted to stay together and I don't really know what's happened to them since then. So we see um, you know, a difference from the book to movie. The Lord is a little bit more waffling on many of the points of his beliefs when there's not so much direct influence on him in any given moment um he he does in the book uh ask stevens to look into it to see where the two girls went he does ask mm. that but it's just that the characterization of him kind of being like unsure just the the un the uncertainty of of his political convictions it uh comes across more in the movie I don't think he, I have to look back. I mean, he doesn't like twirl a mustache in the book. You just can <laughs> tell that he just kind of buys into it mm -hmm. a, a little a little more strongly. Yeah. Uh, Stevens finds Kenton sewing in the sunroom and informs her about the uh, girls and expresses that 
he was sad as well at the time, which frustrates her to hear because mm-hmm. he didn't say that to her at the time and she was clearly struggling and she he, she wants to know, like, why do you always hide what you feel? And uh, as they're talking, the new housekeeper, Lizzie, uh, comes in and after she leaves and takes some trays, uh, Stevens kind of like watches her go and expresses admiration for her work and Kenton starts to kind of poke fun at him for... Uh, not liking to have pretty girls on staff because he fears distraction. He's like, oh, you, do you like her work or do you like that she's like a pretty young girl? Um, and the two continue to walk and poke fun at each other through the gardens. And we get to see a bit more of their casual relationship, having seen how they're they flirting. Can... Yeah, they're flirting. They're, they're having a little fun time. <laughs> uh we go continuing in the garden, see Charlie uh, and the pretty new housekeeper, Lizzie, catch up with each other and give a big old kiss. Uh, and of course, as they're kind of snogging behind the hedges, uh, Miss Kenton spots them and just gives them a brief chide about returning to work before heading away. She's clearly not so strict on rule number one as uh, <laughs> as Stevens might have been. After she leaves, Lizzie and Charlie discuss why Lizzie hasn't told Miss Kenton about them yet. Uh, and she's like, well, Miss Kenton's just too old to understand. She's like 30. I mean, she must feel old, right? Uh, but Charlie posits that maybe she doesn't feel quite as old as they expect since she's always picking all those pretty flowers for someone. Um, we see her yeah, delivering. They know. <laughs> yeah, they know. Everyone in the house is very aware <laughs> of these two's relationship um, or lack thereof at this point. Uh she delivers the flowers to Stevens at that very moment in his uh, pantry and catches him reading. He won't tell her what the book is, and she teases him that it must be something racy. And she practically corners him as they kind of like chase around the room a little bit to see what the book is, eventually getting close enough to try and pry the book from his hands. And as she kind of peels his fingers back to get to the book, his attention leaves said novel and kind of watches her for a moment. Uh, and as she finally gets the book from his hand, she sees that it is a sentimental old love story. Stevens explains that he reads to develop his command of the English language and continue his education, and so the content doesn't really matter, uh, and softly asks her not to disturb the few moments he has to himself. And this moment of literal, uh, uh, physical and emotional closeness kind of fades away as the two separate. Um, and he, she, she leaves and he in stays movie. in his little corner, like all hunched in his little window curtain. <laughs> it's incredible. It's very, it's not a sexual tension, but it is like, it's that kind of romantic tension that these period pieces like. I, I would call it kill. a sexual tension for sure. <laughs> I mean, it gets you know, close. Again, yeah. I don't um, know the distinction between romantic and sexual in this, co- <laughs> I mean, but it, it's as sexual as it gets for the movie. Yeah. Um, it's the most explicitly romantic scene that they really have uh, together. It's the point where you really see just how close they have gotten over all these years working together, uh, which will make the subsequent events of this particular flashback all the more tragic. Charlie and Lizzie go to see Miss Kenton. Uh, Lizzie enters her office and gives her her notice that she and Charlie are getting married and she'll be leaving the service. Miss Kenton asks her if she's really thought this through. She's got a fine career ahead of her. She sticks to it. And, you know, they're both very poor. What are you going to do for money? But Lizzie is very committed and very sure that what she wants is to be in a relationship with Charlie and nothing else really matters. 
And as, after she leaves, Miss Ketton sort of quietly whispers good luck to her, uh, supporting the young girl's conviction, even if she's not so sure about making that kind of choice herself. Later, Stevens and Kenton are lounging off duty, discussing the young couple. Stevens seems unperturbed, but Miss Kenton is clearly annoyed and tired, and when Stevens tries to discuss next week's meeting, she just goes off about how tired she is uh, and, and kind of like breaks down a little bit. Stevens takes this as a uh, dislike. She is for their... tired, but yeah. not physically tired. Yeah, emotionally. She's, she... Yeah, she's over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stevens tries to apologize. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize your, our, our evening meetings were adding to your work board burdens and leaves, saying that they'll discontinue these meetings. And though she tries to protest it, she's like, well, no, no, no. I'm just, it's just tonight. Like, we can keep doing this. Uh, he persists and they discontinue these events. And he and I, leaves. I know upset. that passive aggressive move, by the way. I know that one very well. Where it's like, oh, oh, you don't. Okay, you don't like me? No, no, it's cool. Hey, no problem. We'll just cancel the whole thing altogether. You don't have to ever see me again. Nothing. <laughs> cool. Great. Great. Yep. And then she pulls another passive aggressive move by leaving the next day. She takes her day off uh, and rides her bike right off of the estate. She starts taking these days off. Yeah. 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 She goes to a nearby pub where she meets up with Mr. Ben and shares a drink and some food. And they sort of like chat together and reminisce. And uh, Ben doesn't necessarily share Stephen's butlering philosophy. Uh, right. He's like, hey, he's a little bit too dedicated to it for me. And Kenton kind of agrees with him a little bit. She's like, oh, maybe so. But, you know, he's got merits. Um, ben says that he wants to start uh, his own career, maybe open a little shop or a boarding house, maybe in Clevedon. Huh? Remember that name from the beginning of the film? <laughs> Uh, where he's originally from. And, though, and Mr. Uh, ben yeah. is right, though. I mean, he's not... Mr. Ben may not have, like, the determination or the ambition that Stevens, but mm-hmm. he's right. So he, so who's to say if he's going to be as successful? But he wants to have his life in his own hands. Not yeah. different from, like... Uh, not to go to back to the pub, there was this guy named Mr. Harry Smith who, like, played darts and wanted to talk politics. But, you know, he... He understood himself as like, my vote counts. I, you know, I'm not just some butler who belongs to somebody else. But um, uh, yeah, anyway, hey, shout out to Mr. Ben for giving it a try. <laughs> yeah, it's an admirable position. It's good to know yourself to that level, uh, even if you are not agreeing with the main character of this movie. That's fine. That just make, gives us a good counterpoint to Steven's um, dedication to the job. Uh, and Kenton even sticks around to continue this conversation for another round of drinks, even though it's getting close to when she said she'd be back at the manor. As they leave the pub, the two continue to chat, and Ben asks if Kenton plans to remain in the service, uh, and she starts to sort of parrot back Stephen's sayings about the importance of work and the service, and uh, eventually Ben interjects to ask her, uh, but what about you? I'm asking about you. What would if like hypothetically, if I asked you to come uh, run a boarding house by the sea with me, would you want to do that? Uh, and the conversation continues. They start going by each other's first names. There's a lot of charm in the air. And uh, as she sort of comes around to the idea, they have a little smooch. Uh, and the tolling of the bell finally alerts her of how late it is. And she begins to head home. Mr. Ben pays her the attention that she was wanting from Stevens the whole time. Yes. Basically. Yep. There was a moment, there was a vacuum there, and Mr. Ben <laughs> went for it, basically. He was at the right place, right time, more than anything else. Yep. Stevens is delivering late night tea to his lord, who is looking very disheveled and sort of off his game a little bit. Uh, when Cardinal arrives at the manor, 
Uh, Stevens greets him at the door and Cardinal asks if he can stay the night and Stevens sees to setting him up uh, with his usual room and informing the Lord that he's here. He tells Cardinal that the Lord is expecting guests after dinner and that Cardinal should probably make himself scarce for that. Stevens mm -hmm. lets Kenton know that they'll need Cardinal's usual room prepared and she reminds him that Thursdays are her days off. She'll be unavailable tonight. She informs Stevens that Ben has asked her to marry him and she's thinking about it. Uh, she hasn't made a decision yet. He's moving back west next month, and she wanted to inform Stevens of the situation. Stevens maintains that Butler stoicness and wishes her a pleasant evening out, uh, as he shows no real reaction to this news, uh, or at least shows no reaction so intentionally that it sort of betrays how much that news might have affected him. At dinner, the Lord and Cardinal discuss the visitors tonight. But all of this is very strictly confidential, and since Cardinal is now a uh, one of the news media journalists out there, uh, he'll be nowhere near all the secrecy. Cardinal watches from a window as the spooky secret guys arrive. Many lords and prime ministers, uh, including the German ambassador, the prime minister, and I think the foreign secretary are the three that they kind of name. Yeah, it's uh, it's Ambassador uh, von Ribbentrop from Germany, and it's Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of of. Britain, and it's the uh, Lord Halifax, the British Foreign Secretary. Yes. So uh, some some big players. Yes, the real tonight. who's who. There's a scene where the Germans are let in and they're admiring the art in the house and they make a note of specific paintings for later, which if you're at all familiar with the practice of art theft during World War II, this sort of reads into that a little bit. The men are all talking about how they don't intend to involve the British Empire in a war that doesn't consider them. And the Germans are talking up about how, oh, well, our leader's just doing what's what's proper. Like, we can't just ignore a small nation that's been prodding us. But at the same time, we're not like, we're not taking over Europe. You could totally trust us. We're not going to try and take over Europe. It's like uh, trying to, again, curry favor and appease. Yeah, they're full of shit. Yeah, they're completely. <laughs> yeah. Um. Stevens goes to the uh, servants' quarters and opens the door to let Miss Kenton in as she was stopped by two guards who require confirmation of who she is and that she works at the estate. She asks Stevens if he'd like to know what happened to her that evening, and uh, he tries to just return to his duties, and she informs him that she had accepted the proposal from Mr. Ben. She gives her formal notice, and he tries to return to work. But this lack of reaction to her news is very annoying to her as they've known each other mm -hmm. for quite some time. And she's like, is that really all you have to say? And she goes on to sort of ramble a bit about how she tells Ben all about Stevens and his mannerisms. And he points out some of his mannerisms about how he makes a little face whenever he adds pepper to his food. It's uh, so good. It's so good. It's, it's that knowing he, those little details. <laughs> he, he, when she talks about the way that... Uh, he pinches his nose to pepper his food. Like mm -hmm. he knows it means that she loves him. And yes. um, and and then you kind of feel like you. It makes you go back and realize that he he knew that when she took care of his father's body, closing his eyes for him, that uh, that you know there she loved him too. And and um, this night just kind of hits him how much like he's been had and. And it's happening to Lord Darlington, too, in a way, too, mm -hmm. right? This was the, is this the same night that Lord Darlington just seemed like kind of slumped over in his bedroom before the evening began? Yes, was that... this is the same one. Okay, yeah. so then they're, they're both kind of realizing that they're being had and mm -hmm. that they've, they've uh, 
thrown their lives yeah. away in a strange way. They're both really making like their big mistake. The one that Stevens alluded to being the one he's going to correct. This is the one that Darlington never could fix and that Stevens is going to try to in the course of this film. They did it to themselves. Uh, Stevens also like really good. I love Anthony Hopkins, like great little performance in this scene as well. Like the little chuckle he does to himself when she's sort of rambling about his mannerisms and uh, the, the look on his face when he does finally excuse himself to return to his duties is just like perfect to understanding the the love that doesn't need to be said. Uh, it, mm-hmm. I can't say enough good things about the performances in this this film. Cardinal is typing away in his room as Stevens delivers a drink to him, and Cardinal asks Stevens to join him for a drink to actually sit down. Uh, and though Stevens tries as hard as he possibly can to resist sitting in the chair and like moving from being the servant to being a friend, uh, eventually he does take a, a seat, however briefly. Um, Cardinal admits that he didn't come here tonight by accident, that he had a tip-off, that there was going to be something going on, specifically the meeting down in the library with all of the important ministers and uh, ambassadors. We said he's a reporter, right? Like, yes. The, I forgot. If we, okay. Yeah, he is a reporter. Yeah. So, he is a reporter. Yeah. He's a reporter. Well, I'll touch on it a little later because there's something with the reporting that I would like to touch back on. But basically, he's trying to get the scoop on his his uh, godfather here. He asks Stevens if he isn't the least bit curious, and Stevens does his usual, like, well, no, you know, I'm, I'm just a servant. I don't need to know what's going on. Um, and Cardinal sort of goes off about how Lord Darlington is trying to convince the English to enter a pact with the Nazis. And Stephen tries to defend his lord's honor, but Cardinal's like, no matter how much we both love him, we, must, we both care for this man. He's very important to both of us. We can't want to see him be tricked like this into supporting them. Yeah. We can't want to see him make a fool of himself and be used. And I think Stephen, it does finally hit Stevens because he sees the same night, he, you know, he's beginning to realize his wrong choices with Miss Kenton as she's slipping mm-hmm. out of his fingers. And it aligns for him, like what he has to live with uh, and how much of a loser he is. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Stevens excuses himself to tend to the other gentleman. And as I don't re- say that to bully him. I say that because it's <laughs> extremely relatable. That's all. It's very, it's, it's the thrust of the film. It, 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 <laughs> he's bullying himself in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stevens is returning through the uh, butler's quarters when Miss Kenton appears and asks him not to take anything that she had previously said to heart as uh, she's, you know, was being foolish. And he tries to like placate her a little bit and say like, oh, you know, I can hardly recall what you said. Um, even though we, we all know he very much remembers. He tells her to go to bed and she so- like quite literally fades into her room. Like she just walks into the darkness. And mm-hmm. so it, it, was, it wasn't funny, but it, there was some part of me that like from a, from a cinematography standpoint, that just sort of, um, it's the gif of Homer Simpson fading into the bushes yeah. is very yeah. much what she looks like yes. <laughs> in that exit of the well, scene. Well, as you know, everyone uses the Miss Kenton gif as well. Uh, you, know, you see those trending. all the time we, we, yeah. we can make this happen sure. uh, it's very reminiscent also of the figures fading away in the very beginning of the film when we were we were seeing uh, Stevens walk through the house uh, this is her really leaving his life um, oh, I didn't make that connection that's good <laughs> Uh, Stevens heads down to the wine cellar and grabs a nice 1913 vintage, but on his way back up the stairs, he drops it. And for the first time, we really see him, like, lose composure. He, like, curses. He's like, damn, ah, damn. Blast. <laughs> blast. We should bring back blast. Blasted. <laughs> oh, blast. Uh, yeah, he drops it. He curses. Uh, it's just, like, a great, like, everything is broken. The status quo is gone at this point. Um, he grabs a new bottle, and as he passes Miss Kenton's rooms, he hears weeping. Uh, he enters without knocking, which is incredibly rude. Uh, <laughs> and he finds uh, the weeping Miss Kenton. And rather than offering her any sort of real comfort, 
He tells her about a small alcove outside the breakfast room that's going to need dusting. Uh, And for a moment, she almost seems so shocked that he could see her crying and not offer her any comfort. Uh, And she returns to work mode and says that she'll see to it uh, until the moment he leaves and she goes right back to crying. Ishiguro, the author, has kind of talked about this before, the way that like Stevens is just so petrified of the realm of emotions. I mm-hmm. think that when he did enter that room and didn't knock on the door, like I, you know, he he knew she was hurt. He wanted to reach out to her. He just is terrified to do it. Like no different than in the when he's in his pantry and you know he mm-hmm. she has to tear the the romance novel from him. I mean. He just needs to get his shit together, man. He could have had her. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. It's just <laughs> terrible. It was his big mistake. Um, it's very it's very reminiscent of how he reacted to his father's death of like focusing everything onto work as opposed to really dealing with and processing the moment that was happening. Uh, it's, 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 it's devastating to see that that was ultimately something he did not learn from and the same mistake that he made again with uh, this possible romantic connection. Uh, We return to the future now where Stevens has finally reached the seaside uh, as he parks and takes out his luggage. Uh, The Miss Ben, uh, previously known as Miss uh, Miss Kenton, prepares for her own day, kind of putting on some makeup and getting pretty. And Emma Thompson looks exactly the same. Uh, (laughs) She looks great. She looks terrific. Stevens looks so much older in the future. (laughs) Kenton looks the same. (laughs) I I will say, no, they... Okay, so Miss Kenton is just a beautiful woman. She absolutely mm. does seem older. She's dressed older. She's she has a composure that speaks of someone who's like more of a mother and and a little more tired or just or if not, you know. Uh, but the aging they did for for both of them, just with purely with makeup and costume and and the way that they walked, I thought was just really brilliant. Uh, no no CGI, no de aging yeah. for this so. one. They they managed they managed to pull it off. I was really impressed with the level of, obviously they're not dealing with the widest span of years possible that a film can go through, but to have all of the characters have their past and present selves, or at least the ones we see in the present, be so distinct and feel so natural is a very impressive feat of practical effects. Um, yes. Emma Thompson is just such a beautiful woman that it is a little <laughs> a little bit distracting at times. Be like, no, no, she's yeah. definitely older. Like she, she cover, covers the mannerisms well. She dresses more matronly. Um, Oh, man. I was like, you could have told me you were in the past. I would have totally believed you. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's, again, she's clearly a woman who's not going to have a turkey neck or something. That's not going right. to happen. That's just not who this person is. It's not a double Do casting tur- situation. There's no, no second actress. No. no. Um, the Maggie Smith is not coming in. Uh, <laughs> oh, at, but can you, know, you imagine? The- <laughs> uh uh, as she goes to leave, uh, her ex-husband asks to chat, and they sit in the lounge as he says that, you know, he'd saw their, seen their daughter the other day and that she had had exciting news. She was expecting uh, her first child, and she wants both her parents over for tea on Sunday. And he's like, oh, I can come pick you up. And as she sort of realizes that her life is here now and th- they're making plans based on this location, there's a, a little look of sadness over her face before she has a chance to go meet Stevens. And uh, Mr. Ben expresses that their house has seemed rather empty without her. And uh, she kind of points out that he cut himself shaving. And there seems to be this deep care that they can't quite shake for each other, even if they are in this period of separation or this divorce. Um, and, and he never got his business off the ground either, did he? No. That didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, they're just sort of... Uh, they're in a seaside inn, but it's he remarks that it's like the place he always wanted to start, but it's not his place per se. Right. 
Reading more of her letter to him over a tea table, Stevens uh, reads how Miss Kenton remembered the happy days at Darlington Hall uh, when finally she arrives and they order some tea and cake and Stevens, never quite getting a handle on emotions, kind of stumbles through some pleasantries about how long it's been and, oh, you all, you look great. It's good to see you. Um, and they, they continue their conversation over some, some tea and some debated cake. This tea parlor also has some so many old couples dancing that we see uh, like one just kind of like panning shot uh at one point it's like a touristy area like yeah. that's the thing with yeah yeah they're, they're on like there's the walking down a pier later on it's just sort of like a, a seaside town um i grew up with the jersey shore they grew up with clevedon same difference <laughs> can't quite have the same emotional moment over uh the world's longest slice of pizza on the boardwalk as you can with uh tea and cakes i assume but teach their own <laughs> I am sure plenty have, of tears have fallen into plenty of slices <laughs> of pie. There's no oh, question yeah. about it. Miss <laughs> Kenton uh, kind of recaps some of what we've talked about. Uh, she asks about the libel suit and expressing what a shame it was for Darlington to go the way that he did. And, and Stephen kind of opens up to her a little bit about how the Lord was really brokenhearted in his final years. Um he reveals that uh, Mr. Cardinal, the young man that he had had even a little bit of a friendship with, was killed during the war. Uh, this is the point where they set up with him being a reporter and mentioning this libel suit so much. My immediate assumption was, well, he's got to be the one who writes the article that he gets sued for, right? Like, this is going to be this big tragic moment. But to find out that he was killed during the war um, is even more tragic on a level of Stephen's decisions affected not only him and where he went in his life but also kind of inadvertently maybe got this this boy he cared about killed um he was never able to to speak up and maybe if he had helped him with his article or done anything at any point it could have changed it but even indirectly it's just a very it's a a real tragedy of war (laughs) oh yeah cardinal didn't write the libelous story no that he he was just a a reporter and he became a war correspondent Mm -hmm. So, no, yeah, he was just report. He knew that he had the inside track and he was obviously against this like horrible German uh, English alliance. So he mm-hmm. was just doing like good political reporting and trying to get that out there. But no, he, he didn't write the uh, what uh, whatever the the libelous headline was in like the Express or one of those tabloids. He didn't work for one of those. That yeah. wasn't him. It was just a red herring. Um Stevens goes on to uh, saying that the hall is starting to get to the good old days, so to speak. You know, there's a new family moving in and he tries to broach the subject of hiring staff looking for a housekeeper. Uh, But she cuts him off and she says that, you know, I have been thinking of going into service again, but it would have to be in the West Country as my daughter is having a baby and I want to be near my family. Uh, so kind of cutting off the possibility of her ever returning to Darlington Hall. They walk the pier together, Miss Kenton saying that she never really thought uh, she was leaving, that it sort of hit her um, only after she was married and only after Catherine was born that she had left it all. Um, and it was only after Catherine was born that she realized she loved her husband uh, and that he was the one who needed her more than anyone else uh, in the world. And she does still wonder sometimes what a terrible mistake she'd made of her life. Um, But it was the choices that she made and she's the one she has to live with. They sit on a bench together and watch as the lights on the pier turn on, which prompts applause every single night. All the the lights going on. People are cheering. 
Stephen seems a little taken aback by this. Very pretty. Very nice seaside towel. Very misty English seaside towel. (laughs) Miss Kenton asks Stevens what he most looks forward to uh, in life, much like how these people all look forward to the lights turning on. He expresses that it's returning to Darlington Hall and straightening out their staff problems. And looking at his life, he just sees him continuing to work. Like He doesn't see things really changing for him. Um, they wait together for the bus in the rain uh, as Stevens, in a, in a moment of final kind of emotion before they say goodbye, tells her to make sure that they make the next years with herself and her husband happy ones and that she goes on to enjoy the choices that she's made. And as the bus comes and Miss Kenton gets on, they say their goodbyes. He apologizes for being that intimate, by the way, and, yeah. and making that suggestion. He has to like, you know, give himself permission to say that as if it's exactly. like, you know, forgive me for being, <laughs> you know, too intimate or I forget mm-hmm. exactly how he puts it. Yes, he's very, still the stiff upper lip as ever. They say their goodbyes. Uh, it's very emotional. Miss Kenton kind of getting on this bus for this last time. Their hands. It's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Holding. We watch in the shot as the bus drives away, just pulling her hand from his. And we see a final shot of Emma Thompson with like silent tears going down her face in the rain as she's watching. Oh, she's bawling. Yeah. Uh, it's horrible. I hit rewind goodbye. on that moment. <laughs> it's it, There's a, a level of deep care that they have for each other that it feels... You know, they were carrying torches in their own ways, whether no matter how much their lives went on and changed, like there was still a care mm-hmm. there. And this is the real first acknowledgement of, no, she's left. Like this is this is the moment she leaves Darlington Hall. It's not when she goes off and gets married. It's at this point when she gets on that bus and that bus drives away. They'll never see each other again. I yeah. mean, it's over. It's, it's done. terrible. Stevens hits the car lights and heads home. Back at the hall, Lewis is greeted by Stevens, who's back to his ever stalwart butlering um the hall is in various states of repair there's art and lighting fixture I, I like the lighting fixtures some of them were being fitted for electric some of them had new bulbs going in uh mm-hmm. the art is being replaced on the walls this is art we see from the auction earlier that lewis had bought back yeah. steven says the house will be all set by the time miss lewis arrives lewis kind of remarks that this is where the banquet was way back when and i gave quite the speech at that time do you remember stevens and steven says that he was just too busy start serving uh, he's just lying. Then, he's lying. He remembers. Yeah. We've seen that he yeah. remembers. It's too painful. It's too painful to bring up. So he just mm-hmm. prefer to, you know, yeah. continue his imprisoned life. Uh, just then a pigeon flies in through the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stevens and Lewis kind of work together to shuffle the pigeon out of the house, uh, shoo it outside. And as Stevens closes the window, once it flies out, we pull out from the estate into a wider and wider shot overhead, uh, seeing just how small it looks from the sky for a moment, uh, how isolated it is, and uh, go to credits. And that That's is it. The Remains of the Day. Very moving film. Uh, you know, something that this gets a lot of credit for is the performances. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson do incredible jobs in their leading roles. Uh, everyone else who pops up is also doing fantastic. But it's it's impossible to look away from Anthony Hopkins at any point in this film. Kind of like closing thoughts on the film as a whole. Uh, is there anything in particular about this that makes you come back to it each time? Uh, is there anything about this you think that often gets overlooked by first-time viewers or by modern viewers. I know you mentioned at the top of the show that sometimes it's tricky to find people to talk about this movie with. Is there a reason you think that this maybe gets looked over sometimes or a reason that you think people should especially look seek it out? Um, well, I, th- I hope that for those who haven't seen it yet, they wait till 
see it and then listen to this. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I yes, I already mentioned sort of how I felt that this was just uh, an adaptation that outdid itself. And um, this is a cliche description, but the two uh, screenwriters, uh, Ruth Prar uh, Jabvala and then Harold Pinter, who was uncredited, but he did the previous draft, but a ton of stuff that he did is still in there. Um, just the way that they are able to minimize and condense characters or scenes in the book, but also emphasize other areas and just the way they breathe life into the smallest moments or, mm-hmm. or the moments that the author Ishiguro just kind of barely gives passing reference to. Um, or, or I think about like the, the way they enlarge, like the father's failed attempt to cross that stone path when he's mm-hmm. serving tea. But uh, you asked like why I think the movie's, I mean, overlooked is a strong word, but like, why is it so difficult like for me to run into people to discuss it? I mean, I mean there's like, so this movie came out in 93 mm-hmm. and I think of, and cut me off at any time, but I think about like two kind of cultural footnotes from around that time that kind of frame the way I think movie going public at large thinks about the remains of the day or movies like it. Um, Hey, you ever see Waiting for Guffman? I'm sure you have, right? (laughs) So at the end of Waiting for Guffman, uh, Christopher Guest's character, I forget his name in the movie. um, He like... He like works at his gift shop and it, the gift shop has all the these ironic, like totally useless, uh, uh, you know, toys. It has like action figures for uh, my dinner with Andre and it has a remains of the day lunchbox, which is literally like the last lunchbox anyone would want um, because it, it was this time when the costume drama was able to kind of. Uh, corner the market in awards show seasons. So mm-hmm. like Merchant Ivory did it before with like Howard's End and A Room with a View. And there were other things like Dangerous Liaisons. And this was all happening. And these were all like respected, often British productions that, um, you know, Academy members loved. But the Tarantino sort of Sundance kids were coming along too. And they were kind of like the fuck you to this. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I'm here to say, and I, I I am an unapologetic Tarantino bro, but <laughs> so I understand I understand like his embrace of like more lowbrow genres, whether it's you know kung fu or uh, gangster movies or westerns or whatever. He wants to say like, hey, no, look over here, look at the there's profound you know nuances in these movies, you know. Um, I'm here to say that The Remains of the Day is a cut above all the other Oscar bait costume dramas. Um, And not that I'm against the ones that I just mentioned, but I just feel this one is unique in its own way Mm -hmm. and and you should watch it repeatedly. Yeah, this this gets a lot of points for like a, a pretty unique structure for the story. And it feels very natural to the way it unfolds that I think pulls yeah. you in in a way that sometimes sometimes the costume drama can be a bit of an ask if you're not already invested in film nerdery. You're not like a bit, you know, you're not a film snob for lack of a better term uh, or you're not already invested in this particular genre. It can be a big ask. But I feel like this one is approachable in that it it, it forces you to, to watch the screen and never look away uh, because it is just so enthralling in that manner. Um, mm-hmm. 
because uh, the does. costume drama in general can be, I mean, it can be middle brow, right? It's mm-hmm. like the costume drama, you can think of any number of them, uh, feel like they can be, um, quote, smart movies, but for stupid people. Like we're supposed to, like I'm supposed to be impressed because the costumes are good and that's it. But um, but hopefully there's like enough delicious subtext in there that mm-hmm. draws you in. That's what you want, right? Yeah. So, this feels um, like a good application of the subtext while still having merit hello uh but you know i it's a fantastic film i think we both landed on if you have not seen it already you should definitely go watch the remains of the day so that we have more people to talk about it with um yes brian thank you so much for joining me before we go uh you have written a book Uh, i'm sure our audience would love to hear about so if our listeners want to hear more from you where can they find you and what cool projects have you worked on uh, well, I have. You're right. I have a new book that just came out called "You Talking to Me: The Definitive Guide to Iconic Movie Quotes," and uh, I had written and reported on that. It's it's a series of essays that covers like the origins and meanings and influence of I don't know 200 iconic lines. Um, mm-hmm. That's in bookstores everywhere. But yes, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Letterboxd at Brian Abrams A B R A M S, and you can find me there and uh, pick on me all you want. Awesome. Uh, we'll have all of that linked in the show notes down below. I'm really excited. My, my copy's on the way. I'm excited to give it a, a flip through. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. I have to return to work as a, a, my duty is to the service as always. Uh, but we'll yes. be back with another episode uh, in like two weeks time. <laughs> thank you for listening. And thank you again to Brian. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on November 6th with another thrilling installment, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, and if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron for even more exclusive benefits like monthly patron-selected movie reviews. I'd also like to give a special thank you to the patrons who joined us last month. It's because of patrons like you and everyone who supports the show that we're able to keep the lights on and keep the cat who is currently jumping on my shoulder fed in the good cat food. So thank you to Madeline Deich and Lennard Zagatz.